Welcome to Breakfast with Jesus for 2023. In this talk, I'm going to cover Jeremiah 32, which obviously follows Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 was the substance of the last two talks I gave, which were on the New Covenant, the astonishing parameters of the New Covenant. And in talk eight, we looked at how that New Covenant passage is uh, used by the writer to the Hebrews. Uh, Jeremiah 32 uh, is also consequential, I think, on Jeremiah 31. It's, it's positioned, obviously, in the narrative and arrangement of the text immediately following, following Jeremiah 31. So in a way, Jeremiah 32 is the so what mindset um, that follows the grasp of the new covenant. Uh, for us as Christians, this is obviously instructive. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly big topic because A, Jeremiah 32 is a big chapter, but I also want to position it in the modern debate over eschatology. So there's a, a lot to talk about. As a result, I'm going to do it in two halves. In the first half, I'm going to actually open up not looking directly yet at Jeremiah 32. I want to look at the problem of heaven and the Christian imagination failing in its ability to grasp the end of all things. Uh, a problem that I think has narrowed, even distorted our view of what the gospel is. Allowed the gospel to become uh, really a solution to present day problems uh, rather than a revolution uh, to a new order of things. And then I will talk about, I'll go back to Jeremiah and, and, and dive into his situation. I'm bringing these two things together, obviously, the, the Jeremiah 32 and the buying of the field and what light could this shine on our problems uh, of the imagination of the end of all things and how, how, how that imagination might help us to act. That I'll talk about that in the first talk. And then the second talk, I'll just dive into it in more detail. Um, so let's just forget about Jeremiah for the moment and look at this really big issue, which I sometimes call the problem of heaven in the Christian imagination. And... Uh, and the fact that in the Christian imagination, what we've really got is a fascination with the end times. And if you were to ask most people what eschatology means, most Christians, uh, of course, eschatology is a strange word that uh, most Christians don't have a very tangible grasp of, understandably. But what they do have a tangible grasp of is end times thinking. And they think, well, that's what eschatology is. It's prediction of future events. Um, well, that's not really what eschatology is. Um, and as a matter of fact, because of the narrowness of that conception in theology and in Christian teaching, uh, the gospel is not really framed as an eschatological story. Um, salvation is seen more as a solution to the problem of sin. So eschatology has been a poor cousin in the field of theology. And the person who rang the bell on that was uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann. He, uh, he wrote a breakthrough book called The Theology of Hope, 
Um, and he opens that book up by a critique of um, the way eschatology has been handled and minimised in, in, in modern Protestant, but probably general Christian theology. And, and this was his critique, that it's actually become a doctrine of the last things or the end times. And what's wrong with that is that it's focusing on events. These are his words, which will one day break upon mankind in the future, if they'll break upon history and the world at the end of time. I call that thinking timetable thinking, which is really how I read most uh, Christian handling of the book of Revelation and what they would think would be eschatology. It's the end time. So it's a prediction of events that will lead to the end of the world, which sometimes I like to say it's timetables and transport. So it's, you know, when will things happen and how will we get to heaven, transported to heaven? What's wrong with that, you might ask? Um, well, we've seen, practically speaking, I think in modern evangelicalism, what might be wrong with it, where people... Uh, rush to uh, uh, modern events and see modern events as uh, signals of the end times beginning. And um, this has led to chaotic and erratic behaviours. Um, I think uh, for decades, and um, uh, there's something very wrong with it. It feels very wrong. It feels like it's really feeding fascination, um, not growth. What Maltman says is that this timetable mentality um, relegates the end times to the last days and it robs them of their significance for the present. That's the key of his critique. So they become barren teachings. Uh, they, they just feed curiosity. Um, in my view, a kind of like religious version of Nostradamus. And their attachment to the gospel is tenuous. Um, Maltman goes further and, and says that they are not attached to the cross and the resurrection in any intrinsic way. They're just like an appendix flapping around at the end um, without a bearing on the present. Um, so what this says is we need a new way of thinking about eschatology. Um, that's really what I want to develop in this short talk. Um, one of the clues to the new way of thinking is the resurrection is the key to a new way of thinking of eschatology because the resurrection is a new order of creation. Um, and we'll develop that thought um, as I go along. I mean, we uh, Christians of all people should be people of the uh, future. I don't, actually, I don't like people of the future is the problematic phrase. We should be people of the end, not as in the temporal end of things, but as the consummation of all things, the purpose of all things. We should be people of future purpose. Um, and in this talk, I want to try to put some meat around that. Um, and I think this Jeremiah story really helps us to do that. And, and so I'm going to do 
two things to try and, you know, renovate and enliven the word eschatology. The first thing is to simply reframe eschatology as hope. Now, hope's a word that occurs a lot uh, in the New Testament. Often we use it as synonymous with faith, and it's clearly not, so we want to pull them apart. Um, obviously, Lisa Aitken's talk, talks recently are very helpful about this, that, that hope, um, which has a future aspect to it, um, for sure, but has a visionary, optimistic aspect to it as well, Somehow or other, psychologically, and I'm not talking about Christians, I'm talking about everybody here, it seems to open the door to the good life and to wise living. So if we were to say Christians should become more au fait with eschatology, a lot of people think, oh yeah, that's pretty academic, um, that's not very relevant to me. But if we said Christians should be au fait with hope, and the Bible, as we know, does say, and I forget where exactly where you could look it up in the concordance, it could be Timothy or something, be ready to give a reason for the hope. So it's not good enough to just be vaguely hopeful. We have to have a rationale for hope. Um, and I, one of my aims in the talk is to help us all do that. The second thing I'd like to do is to lift this word eschatology out of its religious grammar and put it into the whole of life grammar, because I think... If it's allowed to be a religious word, it, uh, it becomes um, anaerobic, enclosed, and begins to stink. I mean, let's put it out into the open world and let's, let's, let's give it as a word for all of life. And I think that's very relevant because we know that all people, the modern mind, are intrigued with the future. I mean, just look at the popularity of books like Sapiens, uh, Transhumanism, I think the dread of the future with global warming. It's a very hope, i.e. Um, where we're going, what our vision for where we're going is, 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 a, is a very, very modern issue. And probably more so than ever before, given the dynamics of the world we're living in. So um, once we move to the world of hope or future thinking, I think there are two uh, perils, twin perils in thinking about the future, but, you know, bad ways of doing it. Um, particularly if our future thinking is what I call prediction thinking. You know, I'm just trying to predict what the future will, will do, which is, which is what I think most end times teaching does. It, 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 it seems to feed um, a morbid fascination, <laughs> but that's all it does. That's all it does. Um, well, one of the perils is uh, what I'd call nihilism, alarm. In other words, a sense of doom, doom and destruction that is inevitable uh, and determined. Um, and in this particular case, where uh, you know, I think we're very, very uh, prone to thinking about the future without any hope at all, hopeless thinking. Uh, and today, uh, with the global warming and the crisis of ecology, I think it is a um, I was going to say looming danger, I think it's a present danger of, of almost a global depression, uh, particularly amongst young people. I can remember um, in my firm, Second Road, um, when Lisa talked to them, you know, half the young people didn't want to have children because they think, well, I'm just giving birth to children and into a world that's doomed. In the face of nihilism, you, you just go to distraction. You just go back to daily life and say, I'm just gonna live and, live and let live. Um, the, the 
there's there's no I actually don't take the world seriously because it's going to get it's going to get uh, trashed. The second peril, which is really the flip side of, the, of a kind of nihilism, is escapism. Uh, in other words, I, can, I escape into a world of fantasy um, that lifts me out of the present into 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 futures that are fictional or not, but they're not not here. That's for sure. I mean, reality is somewhere else, not here. Um, and clearly there are strong Christian versions. I mean, I think the end times thinking probably feeds both of those from a Christian perspective. Nihilism is, you know, the declaration that the world is sinful and is going to be destroyed. And I used to think that meant we're going to heaven and the whole earth and the ecosystem of creation is just obliterated, uh, which is a form of Christian nihilism. Um, Escapism, well, that's kind of the swing low, sweet chariot. You know, um, reality lies elsewhere. It's in heaven. It's not here. That's where we're going. Heaven's our home. Um, and, and both of these perils, um, ways of thinking about the future, um, I think they lead to the same uh, devastating outcome, which is neither of them speak to or enable an engagement with the present. That, by the way, was Maltman's main critique. True hope changes how I engage with the present. And if we let the gospel get framed between these twin perils, uh, we get a judgment and escapism gospel. So the judgment gospel proclaims um, God's destruction uh, of the earth. And the escapism is you'll get to heaven and escape from judgment and hell. And I think, I think those twin lenses are not true eschatological thinking or hope-based thinking, and they distort the gospel. So the question I'm addressing is, well, if, if we say that eschatology slash hope is integral to the vision of the gospel that we have received, how does it work in our present lives? Um, how can we escape it being you know, a license for Christian nihilism or Christian escapism. Now, the, the central idea um, which Maltman advances in his book is we've got to move from a timetable thinking, he doesn't use that word, but I am, a timetable thinking to transformation. That's the critical thing. And from future to future present so that we see how the promised future invigorates and illuminates the present and transforms my picture of it. Um, you can have a go at the theology of hope. It's a heavy book. Uh, but the central argument of that book, which he develops in very thick um, prose and thinking, uh, obviously it's translated, so I don't quite know if he'd written it directly in English, if it would be more accessible. Um, but the central argument is that hope for the future transforms how we engage in the present. It casts this light onto the present, which I like all the time thinking about one of the images that keeps coming to my mind and I know was a favourite of the patristics was the burning bush. It was Moses saw the burning bush, he saw it in a transformed way. Um, and I think what this ends up with is how we also might transform how we package the gospel, how we express the gospel, expressing it as a message of hope.
and declaring it as a message of hope to a world that needs hope. Uh, in order to do that, we need to change the lenses uh, of nihilism and escapism. So that's the modern context. Let's now just leave that and the challenge of how we can think better about hope. And let's now go to Jeremiah 32. And for the rest of this first half of the talk, I just want to talk about the situation. Um, I mean, obviously read it yourself, but it's a narrative. And, and I think it, what it does is, is this, uh, this story offers us a very helpful analogy of how hope transforms the way that we engage with the present, which was the central challenge, I think, that, uh, um, that I just mentioned in getting a refreshed eschatology. So let's recall Jeremiah's context. Um, he actually had a prophetic calling in chapter one. I didn't give a talk on this, but I might that deliberately positioned him um, somehow or other between these two poles of criticism and optimism. Um, he was told in chapter one that God was calling him to pull down and destroy, but to build um, and replenish. So he had that, there, there was a sense when I read that of Jeremiah being involved in a productive paradox between critique and building. And he had to work, work within that tension so we know that he was um, preaching destruction. Um, he was uh, in, in Jerusalem. So he, he had been in Jerusalem for quite a long time. It looks like he was an old man by the time this was happening. Um, he'd seen the movements of Babylon and its encroachment. Um, and he, he was declaring that Babylon was actually the Lord's instrument for judgment. Now, what this did is it positioned him as, uh, as an antagonist to Israel, really, unpatriotic, unpatriotic. Unlike Elijah, his opponents were not um, pagan priests. His opponents were um, mosaic priests and prophets, people who, who claimed to be you know, true to Moses and true to Moses' calling to Israel having special uh, favoured status amongst the nations that God was on their side and would always back them. And so therefore, God is going to defeat Babylon, which is what Zedekiah, Zedekiah was rebelling against Babylon. Um, in contrast to that, Jeremiah, who looked like the voice of doom, and clearly Jeremiah, by the way, was not some um, poor rustic, prophet, you know, on the streets. He was clearly part of the, um, the royal entourage. I mean, he had access to Zedekiah. He was, he was, um, he was part of the privileged community of, the, of leadership in Israel. That's clear from the context. He was declaring that Jerusalem would be exterminated, wiped out and obliterated. And this was devastating because he was preaching the end of Israel's identity. But as we saw last time, he had also got a vision of a new future that was not merely going to be some linear extension of the old regime. He wasn't talking in his optimism about improvements, uh, reprieves, um, reforms. 
he was talking about a utterly the birth of an utterly new covenant and an utterly new relationship between God and his people. Now, as far as we can see, as far as I can see in, in reading in Jeremiah 31, um, this was what we call pure abductive thinking. There, he couldn't see any pathway. There was no deductive logic to it. As a matter of fact, he was deductively illogical. Um, he, was, he had a visionary, God-inspired leap into the future, uh, but he had no timetable. He had no, couldn't say upon what conditions or circumstances this would be brought into practice. And so he had, he was living in a paradox, an illogical hope of a future and a declaration of inevitable present destruction. And in this situation, he got a vision from God to buy a field. Um, now, the circumstances is he was not buying the field for investment. He was buying it as a kinsman redeemer. And I think most of you would be aware of what that meant. It, it, it meant that um, he was able to help out a member of his family, in this case, I think a cousin, who probably had fallen on hard times. And rather than that land being surrendered and lost to the family, a kinsman could buy it, buy it back, keep it in the family. Um, Probably in the circumstances, Jeremiah was kinsman of last resort. It looks like he was a distant relative. So one can assume that plenty of other people had read the writing on the wall and thought, no way, Jose, I'm not buying this block of land. Um, but the critical thing about the kinsman redeemer now part of the story, because as we use the story for as a typology of our situation, the details, some of the details I think are productive. He was not doing it on his behalf. He's doing it on behalf of another. Um, but the critical issue is um, in the market he was in, the land was valueless. It was at, at face value, an utterly illogical decision for him to make. Um, now, once he bought the land, uh, there's a lot of detail, by the way, in what he paid for it and how it was publicly witnessed. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, apparently this was how um, deeds of agreement were done in the ancient times. And Jeremiah was a dignitary, he was a public figure, so and he was moving in the palace complex of circumstances at the beginning of Jeremiah 32, make that plan. I mean, he was sort of under house arrest, but that he was moving around the palace complex. He paid about half, half a kilo of silver for the land, um, and it's, it's useless trying to work out what that might be in modern land values. Um, but when he bought the land, what they used to do was they'd, they'd actually create a written document and then have it in two halves. Half of it they would, two copies, sorry, two versions, one and a copy. So the first version, the, the primary version, was uh, tucked up and put in a clay vessel where it was sealed. So it was kept there uh, for future record to be broken open if ever needed. And then the public document that was used um, um, was um, open, open for view for viewing, and the text goes through that in some detail. What then happened is we see is that he was actually confused himself by God's commandment. He knew what he was doing seemed illogical, and there's a long, wonderful prayer um, where he, yeah, unburdens his 
confusion at the incongruity of this commandment, a totally bad investment in the present situation, um, a ridiculous time to, to buy property. Um, the Lord answered by reiterating Jeremiah 31, the, the great promise that in fact, this was not the end of all things. This was penultimate, not ultimate. The destruction was penultimate. The, ulti the, the ultimate and the destruction was a pathway to the ultimate was the renewal of the promised land, bringing his people back into the land. Uh, verse 39 says, I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Uh, and, and God talks about why he's got Jeremiah to buy the block of land, because in this new situation of this new covenant, fields will be bought for money, he says. Deeds will be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah. And then he lists them. So the picture is a picture of renewed trade, enterprise and commerce based upon the land, um, spread throughout the whole of the, of the nation. And the climax is they shall be my people and I'll be their God. So Jeremiah was acting not on the present circumstances, but on the future hope. And to Maltman's point, that future hope dictated how he saw the present. So the, 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 the main idea we get from this is this thing called, you know, for us, if we interpret it into our circumstances, um, I would say that this eschatological thinking requires, firstly, a vision of the future state of all things. That's what feeds it. As it were, Jeremiah 31 feeds Jeremiah 32. You couldn't skip Jeremiah 31 and go straight to Jeremiah 32. You need a vision of the future state of all things. Jeremiah needed that vision. He needed that vision reinforced to him. All things, and what does that mean for us? It means all things renovated by the resurrection order. And what that we then, and that future state of all things is grounded in the present state of all things. It's not an alien new land we get transported to. It's the same land renovated by the resurrection order, by the new creation. So we therefore, so that's the first thing we need. We need that vision. And therefore we act on the logic of hope. That's what I would call eschatology, acting on the logic of hope. We make our decisions not, uh, not on the present situation, but you know, the story says Jeremiah had his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what was happening in the present, but he saw through that to a lens of optimism, hope and joy and he would act on the logic of that hope. Then the third thing it did is, what that is, it brings the reality of hope into the present situation. Even if it defies the logic of hope, we, we bring the reality of hope into the present situation. We of all people should have the language of hope on our lips. And um, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm gonna finish here because it's already quite a lot I've talked about and then give a, a, a second talk very shortly, unpacking this in, in, uh, purchase of the land in more detail. But I just want to finish with just a, a, a reminiscence, I suppose, and on, on how practical this is in lives. Um, what I've just said is the logic of hope on our lips. And um, 
this was probably uh, no truer in anyone that I've known in my life than my, my mother. Um, having met Jesus, um, she, as a young woman, my, I was only a young, I was five when she was converted. Um, she, she just developed more and more and more and more into an agent of grace and uh, she had the most beatific smile <laughs> uh, that illuminated her face that I've seen on any human being. I'm not the only person to have said that about her. But one thing about mum was obviously in family situations, difficult times occur. You get you know bad behaviour from grandkids or you know bad behaviour from people, and she just seemed to have this blessed interpretation of potential rather than criticism. She seemed to see people as they are in the future, not as they are in the present. And she would just quietly say words to that effect. I mean, mum was a simple person. She wouldn't sort of unpack what I've unpacked about eschatology, but in how she read the present, she was reading uh, situations that really um, at face value would seem to be demanding criticism and despair, she was reading them as having this uh, potential for inner glory that was grounded in her, uh, her God, not in herself. And she would quietly mention, you know, say, say words to that effect. And it, 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 that had a, those words had a calming effect on people on me and others, um, even though she was not a dominant person, they just seemed to cast a, uh, a light on things that in practice began to contribute to redemption. So more of that uh, next time, and I'm, I'll just want to dive into this uh, in a second talk in a few days time, um, in, into this uh, particular symbol of the, of, of the um, or typology of hope at work in the purchase of land by Jeremiah.